Four and a half decades ago, Daniel Ortega was the standard bearer for the Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional, or FSLN, the socialist guerrilla army that seized power in Nicaragua in 1979. In contrast to the autocracy and corruption of deposed dictator Anastasio Somoza, the Sandinista government was, at first, a breath of fresh air. The new revolutionary government embarked on a series of land reforms, economic reforms, and a highly successful literacy campaign. Ortega became the poster child for socialist revolution in Central America. After re-winning the presidency in 2006, however, Ortega has betrayed his revolutionary roots, becoming more and more authoritarian. Last year, this became strikingly clear with the Nicaraguan government's bizarre crackdown on Shanice Palacio, a Nicaraguan beauty queen who won the Miss Universe pageant. Donna Vukulich Selva is an associate professor of education at Edgewood College who studied Latin American, Caribbean, and Iberian issues and formerly taught at a bilingual school in Managua. Donna Vukulich Selva joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Thanks very much, Brian, and thanks for always remembering Dr. King on this day. I appreciate that you always take time so that we can hear his words. Very well, important. Thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, tell us about Shanice Palacio, and why did this become... It seems just odd that a beauty queen pageant would become a political issue. Well, you called it bizarre before, and that is the exactly correct way to, to frame it. I am not a big beauty queen pageant person, I have to say, but we were getting texts from all over, people saying, hey, Miss Nicaragua is in the finals, she's in the semifinals, and so we started watching. And when she won, it was, it was pretty amazing. And then hearing from people in Nicaragua saying that people took to the streets. They flew out into the streets with their blue and white flags, which is the Nicaraguan flag, which ironically is banned today. And there was just this huge outpouring, I think, of, of pride and of this sense of being together as a country. And the first response of the Nicaraguan government, which basically you can say is Daniel Ortega and his wife, Rosario Murillo, was very positive. Yay, we have something to be happy about. But within a day, they had gone into this weird thing about it being a coup-mongering kind of attempt to overthrow the government. It, it was bizarre, as you say. It was very, very bizarre. And it's ironic because so much of Daniel Ortega's hostility has been focused on the women's movement. And so it was ironic that here you have Shanice Palacios, and one of her, her kind of winning gown was blue and white. I mean, she looked like the Nicaraguan flag. And that was not lost on people. And the reason that the government went so... Um, after her, after the initial acceptance, was because there were some posts on social media from April 2018 when there was a huge uprising in Nicaragua, and she apparently was part of that uprising. She was a student at the UCA, the Jesuit University, which has since been confiscated by the Sandinistas. And so just that one post on social media where she was out on the streets with thousands of people was enough to make the government go really pretty berserk. And, and what did the government do? What was the repercussions of all this? Well, the owner of the Nicaraguan, of the Miss Nicaragua pageant was not allowed back into the country with her daughter. Her name is Karen Seller Betty. She has been now accused of conspiracy and treason. Her husband and son were taken into custody. There was no contact with them for days. They have since been released. 
Uh, Shanice Palacios herself, I believe her mother lives in the United States, thankfully, and so she has not gone back to Nicaragua yet, and it's doubtful that she will be able to do so uh, anytime soon. But this all goes back to, well, you could go back years and years if you wanted to, but I think it would be easier to go back to um, 2018, which was a huge uprising. They call it, you know, La Revolución de Abril, of, of April. And what happened in, in early 2018 was there was the government was attempting, and that was Daniel Ortega's government, was attempting to change Social Security um, out, you know, payments to people, and the elderly people took, which is probably people my age when you think about it, but they took to the streets, and students and young people started to support them. And the crackdown was brutal. It was immediate, and all of a sudden we had like 75 deaths in Nicaragua at the hands of of the police, who for years had been really seen as allies of the people. I mean, this is a a major shift in terms of how people looked at their government or look at the, the military, et cetera. And I think because of that huge and violent crackdown, that brought thousands of more people out to the streets. And so by the end of the couple-month uprising, there were nearly 400 people, 400 people had been killed. Many, many, many people had fled into exile into Costa Rica and other places, and other people were just under sort of constant harassment and surveillance. Much of that was initially focused on the young people, on the students, and on the press, ironically. So it's been a very, very difficult place to do any kind of legitimate journalism or reporting. If you are doing that, you are basically shut down. So where we used to listen to Nicaraguan news um, a lot on the, on the radio, we now hear just kind of music because they can't say too much or they'll be shut down. I talked to friends in Nicaragua, and they're... The conversations are sometimes bizarrely void of any kind of political content because the assumption is that people are listening, people are watching, people are monitoring social media, etc. So we've we've morphed from this initial revolutionary hopeful situation into what is virtually a police state. And it is a very authoritarian, I think dictatorship is not too harsh of a word, and that has been it's catastrophic for the Nicaraguan people. How did how did Ortega get here? I mean, here's a man who you know uh, fought and spoke eloquently, and you know, and uh, instituted reforms after a really repressive Somoza regime, one of the most repressive regimes in in Central American history. How do you get from a place like that to a place where you're adopting a lot of the same tactics of the dictator you overthrew? That is such a great question, Brian, and I think you're, you're absolutely correct. We cannot forget the the absolutely horrific Somoza regime and what it did to Nicaragua. And I, I've thought about this a lot. I think that sometimes, you know, you think about things like power and how power goes to people's head. And there was, you know, always there's always sort of um, vying for power in the sense of who's going to come out on top because, ironically, as you note, this, the Ortega government has replicated a lot of the Somoza regime kind of elements. You see a family dynasty being formed. I mean, they own like 22 or 21 corporations, that kind of thing where the people in power, um, you are, it's almost cult-like, you know, and it's very, very difficult to understand. One thing I think that cannot be forgotten 
is there is a tremendous, tremendous misogynistic part of Daniel Ortega's personality. He, in 1998, in March of 1998, I remember the day well because it was my son's eighth birthday, and we were in Managua, and on the news we heard that Daniel Ortega was accused of ongoing sexual abuse by his stepdaughter. And his wife, Rosario Murillo, Zoila America's mother, and Zoila America was his stepdaughter, um, sided with Danielle, not with her daughter. And that kind of blew things up. And ever since then, the, the sense of, of Danielle has been really to attack women's organizations, many organizations, and this is way before the 2018 uprising, were... Um, burst into by the police, they had all their computer files stolen, things like that. So I think the misogyny is important. It's important to remember there's a country right now where Nicaragua used to have an abortion law that said you could have an abortion if you, if your life was in danger. Daniel Ortega's regime changed that. So you just can't get it at all. I mean, it's like you know the horror that we're seeing in many parts of this country where women's reproductive rights where their autonomy over their own bodies are simply not respected. Um, I think people will be writing about and thinking about for years what in the world happened to Danielle Ortega and to the promise of the Sandinista revolution because it really is a tragedy. And then I think we, when you think about like Garcia Marquez, and I can't remember if it was Autumn of the Patriarch or um, The General in His Labyrinth, one of those books where he talks about this really paranoid kind of decaying dictator, and I think it was a mesh of Stroessner, Samosa, and Trujillo, and he, that paranoid kind of sense where everybody's against me, that is Daniel Ortega today. And so they have no other recourse than to say, if you go out to the streets to, to support a change, well, then you must be CIA. Well, then you must be a traitor. Well, then you must be a vende patria, as they call it, somebody willing to sell the country out. So there's an, there's no nuance, and there's no sense of awarding the people, the Nicaraguan people, with their own agency. And that, to me, is tragic beyond belief. Is it fair to continue to call Ortega a socialist, or is he no longer fit that description? I don't think he is at all. I mean, he started making pacts in the late um, 1990s when he was in the opposition making pacts with a really horrifically right-wing government of Arnaldo Aleman, um, pacts about basically to protect his little bit of political power and importantly his economic power. Right now the biggest trading partner of Nicaragua is the United States. Um, Nicaragua had a brief sort of respite from having to think too clearly about economic issues when, when Chavez was in power in Venezuela because Venezuela was giving quite a bit of money to, to Nicaragua, and some Venezuelans were looking a little bit askance at that, to be honest. But, um, no, I would not call him a socialist in, in any way, shape, or form. And he's done a lot of damage to the Nicaraguan. Nicaraguan economy in the long term, but more importantly to the Nicaraguan psyche. And over 100,000 people left the country after the uprising of 2018 just over the next two years. I don't have the, the stats on what's happened since then, but you have this major, major outflow of people. 
And when Danielle won the presidency again in 2021, and the reason he won is because he conveniently jailed all his political opponents. So all these candidates went to prison. Many people in the political opposition went to prison. Some of them were in for well more than a year. And then they were released in February, almost a year ago. Um, but those prisoners, when they were released, were also stripped, and this is important, they were stripped of their nationality. And so, again, that goes back to this kind of paranoid thing, unless my idea of what Nicaragua is, according to Danielle, is the only thing that matters and counts. And so you have most, you have this, the leaders of the student movement are gone. You have many leaders of the agricultural movement, of the environmental movement, of the women's movement. They have all had to leave the country. Some have left willingly or with fear, obviously. Others have been exiled. In the last couple of days, they um, expelled a number of Catholic priests and bishops. And so there's just this all-out assault on. It's not even particularly ideological. It is, if you disagree with me, then you need to be gone. That's kind of the level of discourse at this moment. Now, is is there a lesson in all of this about uh, the dangers of sort of uh, hero worship or of, or hitching a government star to one individual as opposed to trying to build democratic institutions that can withstand the vagaries of uh, a particular um, uh, despot's uh, whims? I think that is a is a key question. And I think, I think you kind of nailed that the idea to have strong institutions is far more important than having huge heroes, you know, up there. And I think that, you know, I, I go back to the, to the late 80s, even when I was, when I was living in Nicaragua, I was there for many years. And in the late 80s, the women's movement started to criticize very openly. And I thought very, um, to the point, they criticized the Ortega regime on many, many issues, including women's political participation, issues of domestic violence, and importantly, issues of reproductive rights. And they were harassed. And so there was almost kind of like at the very end of 1989, and we had elections on the horizon in early Feb in late February, rather, 1990, the women's movement basically said, okay, we'll help you get elected. And Everything's going to, you know, push comes to shove after the elections. Well, then the Sandinistas lost. And so that should have been, in a way, um, a wake-up call, but in fact, it went the other way. And so Daniel Ortega dug in his heels and became more and more kind of this, um, as you said, a despot, you know. And it, it does really, I think one thing to think about is how our political organizations formed. And the Sandinista organization was formed along highly militarized lines because it had to be. I mean, it was trying to organize in the midst of a brutal dictatorship. It didn't really have any other options. But in the end, that, had, that took a toll. But I think the lesson would be to listen to people, even if they disagree with you. And the women's movement was a profoundly and continues to be a profoundly progressive, visionary voice in Nicaragua and in many other places in the world now because so many people are in exile. And it's a shame that those people were not listened to, that um, people fighting in the mountains against the Sandinistas, who I did not agree with, but their voices should have been heard. And that didn't always happen. All right, we've I been speaking... I, other people would have done a better job than Danielle of, of rising to the occasion, and it, it'll be... 
I mean, someday somebody will write a huge Netflix show about it. Who knows, right? <laughs> We've been speaking with Edgewood College Associate Professor Donna Vukulich-Selva. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buds. Thanks so much, Brian.